Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Good morning. Please be seated. We are now nearing the end of our study in Isaiah. And uh, ever since chapter 40, we have been talking about the coming servant, who we have now known is Jesus. And up to this point, it's been what has already occurred from our perspective. We've talked about the atonement. We've talked about what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. But now... We get to the not yet portion and the things that Christ has not yet done. And so the things that Isaiah has written about 700 years before the coming of Christ, we are now learning some uh, 2,000 years even after the coming of Christ, what Christ has yet to come. And what this is, is the day of vengeance. A somewhat heavy topic perhaps, but it is a truth that must be said. For it is one of the most consistent topics in all of Scripture. That is the wrath of God and the reality of the anger that God has towards not only sin, but sinners. Ever throughout the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New, there is spoken of a day. Uh, and and this, this day is, is used uh, in multiple different ways. It's the, the day of wrath, the day of vengement, uh, the day of judgment. Sometimes it's just called that day. That day when Christ will return and he will make all that is wrong right. Everything that is crooked will be straightened and everything that is evil will be vanquished. There is coming that day when Christ will make it all right. We eagerly await that day, but for some, perhaps, should not be so eager for the very reality of what that day means and the implication of this day of wrath and this day of vengeance, what it could mean for all of us. It's possible when you read these words in Isaiah 63 or or in any of the passages that speak of God's wrath and of his vengeance that you may recoil a bit and, and, and feel like this is things that you don't want to hear. But I would counsel you to hold off on recoiling and and just to take a step back and consider what God's word has to say about the wrath of God, about the very nature of who God is. And to remember one thing, we ourselves are not holy. We have been declared holy, we've been made righteous, but whatever holiness and righteousness that we have is foreign to us. 
It was given to us by the work of another. But God himself is fully and wholly right. He is fully righteous. And we are not. And so it is to be understood that we do not truly understand holiness. We do not truly understand the nature of righteousness because we are not. We can read about it, but we are not that. And the whole issue of God's wrath comes down to his holiness. He is wrathful because he is holy. He is wrathful because he is love. And there are those that would rather downplay the idea of God's wrath. They, they see it as totally incompatible of a God that is love, that can also be wrathful, that can also be angry towards sin. But they are, in fact, one and the same. They are a necessity. And part of that is the reason that this generation, this society of today, defines love in a totally twisted, backwards, and perverted way. Love is defined as, I believe that this person will do whatever I want. I believe that this person will give me what I want. I believe that this person will never say no. And I believe that this person will always act consistently with what I personally define as what love is. That is not love. That is very close to the very opposite of what love is. But love is self-sacrificing. Love puts others before itself. And love is zealous for the things that it holds most dear, for the things that it's loved. And the very nature of God's love is fully holy and fully righteous. And the thing that trips people up is they they think that God must act accordingly to the way that they define love. But that is not how God exists. That is not how God operates. And they're quite shocked to learn that in fact, wrath is the very same. It goes alongside of love. And this is so hard for people to comprehend. And they say, God can't be wrathful. He can't be angry for he is love. And it is quite the opposite. In fact, God is love. Therefore, he must be wrathful. God is love. Therefore, he must hate. Now, many people find that statement quite shocking. Those, those can't possibly be true. Those are two opposites. No, they are not. And in fact... We do the same, even at our imperfect level. The very things that we love and hold most dear, our family, our children. If someone were to come in and attack our children, break into our house, would we not defend our children? Would we not attack the very things that are attacking the very things that we love? If we love our children, we hate the very things that would attack them. We hate the very things that would destroy them, that would kill them. The sin that would destroy our children we hate. We hate these very things. And this is righteous anger. This is righteous hatred. Some think that there is no such thing, but that is not true. God holds a very righteous hatred for all things that would stand against what he loves. For all things that would attack what he loves. This is the very nature of holiness. Him being fully holy and him being fully righteous means that no sin can be in his presence. All sin is an affront. It is an attack upon the very nature of God. It is an attack upon his holiness and righteousness. And because God is holy, because God is good, he must strike against all that is evil. Indeed, God hates all that is evil. And it's not just me saying this. This is what we read in Scripture. It is a very common statement. Uh, God 
hates sin, but he loves the sinner. We have not yet found that verse, but there, there is a verse that, that speaks to how God feels about evildoers. And it's actually quite consistent throughout Scripture. We're going to be hopping through because there's a lot of different verses that refer to this very subject and topic that is referred to in Isaiah 63. But if you go real quickly, you look at even at Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verses 4. David says of God, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. All of this speaks to man's biggest problem. The biggest problem that you and I face on a day-to-day level. And we say that sin is the, the biggest issue that we face. And that's true. Sin is a very large problem that we face. But there is actually, because of sin, a much larger problem that we face. A a, a truth that is so terrible, so awful, that most people cannot bear to hear it. And they won't hear it. They refuse to hear this quite simple truth. And what is this terrible problem that, that man faces? The most terrible problem that we face is that God is good. Now you may think, that doesn't sound so bad, that that God is good. Why is that a problem? The problem that God is good is that you are not. You are not good. And so what is a fully righteous and fully holy God supposed to do with you? Who is not good? Who is not holy? Who is not righteous? And the central question that Christianity posts is, how can God redeem people and still be holy? How can He redeem and forgive sinners like you and I and still maintain His full holiness and righteousness? And the answer to this problem is that all sin, without question, must be punished. God is not holy if he is not angry and wrathful at all sin without exception. And this, brothers and sisters, is where atonement comes in. This is where God has solved our biggest issue. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done. It is because of the atonement that God has fixed what is broken with us. It is because of holiness that God must be wrathful, but also because of His love for us that He has sent His Son to pay the penalty for us. And let's speak of this atonement. What do we know of this atonement? It answers the greatest problem that we face. That is God's anger and His wrath towards us. If you really want to know what what someone's view of the atonement is, you can ask a very simple question. You say that we are saved. What exactly are we saved from? Now, most commonly, what what you'll hear is that that we are saved from sin, or perhaps we're saved from hell, or we are saved from a life apart from God. But those answers are wrong, or at least they're very grossly incomplete. What we are saved from is the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath that He has towards us as sinners. In a very real sense, and you don't hear this said very often, but in a very real sense, we are saved by God 
from God. It is God in His mercy and His grace that has sacrificed His own Son and paid out the penalty for our sins upon His Son. It is not really until you understand wrath, until you understand the depths from which we have been saved, that you can truly understand grace, that you can truly understand mercy and what has been given to us, not on our accord, but because of what Christ has done, to understand what we were truly facing and what God has delivered us from. Uh, Several weeks ago, um, we uh, spoke, uh, or I should say Pat spoke, Uh, on Isaiah 53 uh, about this term, this very kind of uh, complicated term, penal substitutionary atonement. And what that is meaning in a nutshell is essentially that Christ has taken on our penalty for sins. All of those have been taken on upon himself that we have should have the right to do. All of the punishment, all of the anger, all of the hate that God pours out on sinners that would have been our right to have was poured out upon Jesus. And he took that punishment for us. Now, there are a few other fancy theological terms that go along with this, kind of uh, that explain a little bit of what this atonement means. One of these, and these two words are expiation and propitiation. I know, complicated, hang with me, we'll make it interesting. But what this is describing is what Christ has done on the cross. Expiation speaks of something that was taken out of, um, what what was paid out. And this was the work of Jesus paying the atonement for our sins. It was paying the price, paying the penalty for our sins. Whereas propitiation speaks to the thing that is being changed, the object being put on, or in this case, appeased. And propitiation speaks to God's wrath being appeased because of the work of Christ. So if expiation is the work of atonement, propitiation is the result. So when we sing, till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, that's propitiation. That is the work of God transferring the hatred of God to himself. And now we are objects no longer of his wrath, but objects of his mercy. And to go from being enemies of God to being co-heirs with Christ in God's kingdom is a transformation so great that we can hardly comprehend it. Too grand and glorious to be true, and yet it is. To truly understand the depths from which we have been recovered to which now we have been delivered because of the work of Christ, because of what He has done. This is an awesome picture of what God has done. And, and wrath must be spoken of. And it is not just in the Old Testament. Sometimes the argument is, oh, that's in the Old Testament, God. Wrong! It is spoken of just as much in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. It is central to the gospel, especially when Paul speaks of the gospel. He starts off with wrath because he is so excited from what we've been delivered from and delivered to. Really quick, and you can follow along if you can. I'm going to be looking at Romans and doing a quick flyover. But he starts off, Romans chapter 1, verses 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Romans 2, starting in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's interesting what it's saying is that God is withholding his wrath right now. This world is filled with sinners who mock God. They mock him. They say he isn't real, or they mock his righteousness. They mock his holiness. They destroy and they attack everything that he is considered holy. And yet God lets him live. He lets sinners breathe the air that he gives them. This is what's called common grace. And even sinners look at this and and they say, look at all the evil in the world. How can there possibly be a good God? And they say that entirely without irony. That's, that's called the study of theodicy, basically uh, the existence of God and evil at the same time. Answering that question, well, how can evil and a good God exist at the same time? Even sinners, even evildoers know that this world deserves judgment. They can see th- that all the evil that is going on in the world, and it kills them. Even the wicked know that something is wrong. And they believe that there should be judgment, not on themselves, mind you, always on on people that are worse than themselves. But nevertheless, even the wicked know that a day is coming or that there ought to be judgment. But Christ is being patient for now, but there is coming a day, and we hear this throughout Scripture, when God will take out his vengeance on evil, when God will make it right. He speaks more to this. Uh, verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Verse 16, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But there is an answer that Paul gives. Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. It is the wrath of God from which we have been saved. But the good news is, once again, chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is because of the work of Jesus, because of the faith that we have placed in his work and not ours, that wrath is no longer upon ourselves, but it was on Jesus. And Jesus is the one that who has redeemed us. So with that lengthy introduction, let us work on our text. Don't worry, this won't be as long as it sounds. Looking at Isaiah 63, Isaiah 63 is speaking of that day. And it's speaking it from the perspective of what Christ has already done. And you may recall uh, in Isaiah uh, 62, there was the idea of a watchman being put on a tower. And now Isaiah has this perspective of watching for someone that is coming out of the south. Someone that is, who is being watched 
um, this, this brilliant figure that is coming um, out of Eden. Let's take a look at that. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 63. Who is this? There are two questions that are being asked uh, in this passage. Number one, who is this warrior servant? And number two, why is your apparel red? So starting in verse 1, who is this who comes from Eden, who is in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So things to know. Edom is what you might call a rival of the people of God. This, this is a rivalry that are, uh, against Israel. And this is a rivalry that goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. Uh, Edom is the people of Esau. When, when Jacob and Esau split, and you may recall God saying uh, in Romans, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, because Esau represented everyone and everything that stood against the holiness and the ways of God. And so Edom, all throughout Scripture, became symbolic, not unlike Babylon, for the world that stands against God's people, for the world that attacks God's people, for the world that stands against all that is right and good that God has put forth in the world. Uh, the, The entire prophecy of Obadiah is basically about the destruction of Edom. And so here Edom is being used as a representative uh, image, a sample of that which stands against God. And he sees this amazing warrior figure um, coming out of Edom, crimson garments from Basra. Basra was the capital of Edom. And it's interesting that, that later on we should be talking about the wine press and the garments covered in red. Uh, Edom actually means red. And Basra means vintage, um, a, a, an interesting little wordplay there. But he cuts this intentionally awesome picture. There's this warrior servant who is approaching the tower of God's people, um, marching in the greatness of his strength. It says he is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. He is not weary from battle. He is strong. He is significant. And he approaches the people in his strength. And with this awesome picture comes this even more awesome response. He says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the way that Jesus would talk in many ways when approaching his disciples out on the stormy waters, when he approaches them walking on the waves, he says, do not fear, it is I. And here he says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, meaning what he has just accomplished, what he has just done, he was right and good to do. Speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. It is him and him alone that judges and him and him alone that saves this warrior servant. Now, he asked them the other question, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the wine press? He is speaking to the judgment that he has just occurred. And, and this is describing with word pictures what the day of judgment is going to be like. What did Jesus accomplish on the day of judgment? What will he accomplish? And this language, what you see here in Isaiah 63, is going to be used a lot throughout Scripture. And if you remember some of the word choices here in Isaiah 63, you might say, that sounds pretty familiar. And the answer is, yeah, because it's used a lot, particularly in Revelation. 
But here, this warrior figure is stating that he alone has trodden the winepress. He alone has been given judgment. And this might be a surprise to some, that this figure, who is the Savior, who is the warrior Savior, is the one who judges. This Jesus figure is actually the one who is carrying out God's wrath. He alone judges. And that to some is a surprise, but Jesus himself said as much. Uh, When you look at John chapter 5, he said, starting in verse 21, he said of himself, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is Jesus speaking of that day. Speaking of the day that Isaiah is speaking of. Speaking of the day that in Revelation that we'll be reading about. It is Jesus who has been given the authority by God to judge. And it is Jesus that has been given the authority to carry out God's vengeance. It is both Jesus who saves and redeems and Jesus who condemns. It is Jesus who judges. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Something about that doesn't seem right. What about John three seventeen? He said, for, for God did not come to uh, condemn the world, but to save it. Indeed, that was speaking of his first coming. God did not come in judgment like the Pharisees were waiting for, this Isaiah 63 version of the Messiah. His first coming was to save, to declare the favor of the Lord and to declare his redemption. When Christ returns at his second coming, That will be about vengeance. That will be about redemption of his people. He'll return in vengeance. And it will be Jesus who is carrying out both the deliverance of his people and the vengeance upon the world. That is Jesus who will be carrying out that final judgment. He says in verse 3 of Isaiah 63, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. There was no one that helped him judge the world. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now you may be familiar somewhat with the, the picture of a wine press where there would be this great stone vat or a wooden vat and they'd throw in the grapes and, and people would gather around and they'd stomp around on the grapes to squish the grapes and, and it was literally called the blood of the grape that would, would flow out of a hole in there and they would use that juice to make wine. And of course all this grape juice would get all over their clothes and they'd, they'd get red of the blood of the grape. And this idea, this imagery, is used throughout Scripture, both in the Old and the New, as an example of God's wrath, a a picture of what God is going to do on the day of wrath. And let's take a look at this. There's a lot of parallels. And I'd like you to, we're going to take a look at this reference in Revelation. And you are going to see the parallels of these words being used in Revelation, talking about that day. And just a quick primer once again. Uh, from our study in Revelation, that Revelation talks about the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance, in multiple times, in multiple different ways, from multiple different perspectives. 
And so we're going to take a look at those. And all of this is talking about what Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 63. Taking a look real quick at Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, speaking of the day of the Lord. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb. Now that, that's some really interesting imagery. But it was just the chapter before that in Revelation chapter 5 that it was the Lamb who was slain who takes away the sins of the world. That same Lamb who was slain will also be carrying out His wrath upon sinners on the day of wrath. This is that day that is spoken of. Likewise, uh, Revelation chapter 14, uh, same winepress uh, imagery. Uh, verse 19, So the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. A long ways, many hundred miles as an example. Then, of course, probably one of the most great and glorious descriptions of this warrior servant that is coming in power and in strength. So remember the description from Isaiah 63. And now we're going to take a look at, at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And this should be pretty familiar with you. But this, this image is exactly the prophecy that God gave to Isaiah. And it should make sense that both of these have similar language because they have the same author. So this is Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were, the fo- were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. On that day, it will be our Savior Jesus that comes. And he will deliver his people. And he will also enact his wrath and his judgment on all who have attacked his people, on all who have attacked his holiness and his righteousness. And both of these sides are, are sides of the same coin. There is his wrath and his redemption. These are not opposing forces. They are one and the same. Jesus speaks of them in the same breath, both his wrath and redemption. And it is so important for us to get this atonement right. Because when you get the atonement wrong, when you get wrath wrong, you get a lot from theology wrong. Even speaking of things like punishment and hell, 
there, you, you get into all sorts of false views of, of who it is that is carrying out wrath or, or, or how it is that, that what Satan's role in all of this is. So what, what typically a wrong view of God's wrath will lead to is something like dualism. Well, what, what do I mean by dualism? Dualism is something along the lines of, and perhaps you're familiar with this, it's that there are relatively two relatively equal forces battling it out. There's good versus evil. There's heaven versus hell. Lightness versus darkness. And, and these two are forever battling it out. Now, to be sure, uh, Satan is the enemy. And, and there is a battle. But these are in no ways co-equal forces. Uh, God is the deliverer. God is more powerful than Satan. And Satan, uh, though he exists... And of course he exists. He is bound to do only what God allows him to do at this very moment. But we get this view often within dualism that any time that you see Satan, what, where is he? He's like surrounded by flames and he is in hell. And, and so it's this, this heaven is God's home base and hell is Satan's home base. And these two are forever fighting. And you even get kind of strange phrases like a lie out of the pit of hell. And actually, that is not at all a a true statement. Because let us be clear about the nature of hell. Satan is not in hell. Hell does not belong to Satan. Hell is not his domain. That is not where he is. He does not exist there. He is not there yet. He will be there when God throws him into the lake of fire. But Satan is not in hell. He does not own it. So where is Satan? He is on earth. Satan operates from the earth. Hell does not belong to Satan. Satan is not in hell torturing sinners, as is commonly thought. A lot of that imagery actually comes from uh, Dante's literature, Dante's Inferno. And that even wasn't really derived from Scripture. That was driven more from the Quran than it was from Scripture. But we get these false ideas that, that it is Satan that is pouring out his wrath upon sinners. Did, did you ever think that that was kind of strange, that, that Satan would be pouring out his wrath on his followers? Why would he be doing that? No, it is not Satan who pours out his wrath upon sinners. It is God. God owns hell. God has the domains over hell. He owns the keys to hell. Hell was created by God for his purposes. And he uses it for his purposes. And we see this very clearly in the imagery from Revelation. Turn again to Revelation chapter 14. Using language that was specifically referenced to Isaiah 63. Revelation 14 verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So this is very instructive of what we learn about this vengeance. When we say about God's wrath and the day of God's wrath, that is not to mean that it's just a one-day thing, that it's just a one-time thing that God is pouring out His wrath upon sinners. What we see both here and throughout what Jesus has said about wrath and punishment, that it is eternal. It is eternal conscious punishment against sinners. 
This is difficult for people to understand and grasp because, well, our sin is finite. So why could our sin that is finite elicit an infinite response of punishment? And the issue with our sin, it's not so much what you did, which which is bad enough. The issue with your sin is who you sinned against. You have sinned against an infinitely holy and infinitely righteous God. You spit in the face of the king, and there are consequences for that. An infinite and holy response being poured out upon sinners because of the infinite, holy, and righteous God that we serve. It is truly to understand the depths from which we are saved that we can magnify the glory and the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from what he has delivered us from. Do not be mistaken about the wrath of God. We know our God to be good. We know our God to be loving. But the other side of that, because he is fully holy and fully wrathful, that there is a price, a terrible price, that can and must be paid for our sin. If you are a believer, Jesus has paid the penalty and the wrath for your sin. If you are not found in Christ, if you are not found in Jesus, the penalty has been shown to you, and it is coming. The call for you is to repent of your sins and to know what is coming. Furthermore, there are pictures of this throughout Isaiah 63, this vengeance that he alone has done. Verse 3, I've trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples there was no one with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in their wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. We saw that throughout Revelation. And here's something you may not expect Jesus to say, but here he is saying it. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. See, for Jesus the Redeemer, wrath and redemption are not two opposing forces. They are one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin. There is no redemption without wrath. Wrath is what we have redemption from. They are one and the same. And he gives this picture of vengeance coming because vengeance is upholding him. Vengeance is in his heart. But as great as his vengeance is, how much greater is his redemption? This idea of the day of vengeance, but a year of redemption, that much greater is his redemption that that was to come. And then verse 5, he speaks of his salvation. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Again, two sides of the same coin. But the thing to take away here is that it is Jesus alone who judges, it is Jesus alone who condemns, and it is Jesus alone who redeems. There is nothing that we add to this Savior's redemption. There is no amount of penance that we can do. There is no amount of good works that we can carry. He alone, by his own arm, saved us. By his own works, by his own strength, delivered redemption. He looked, but there was no one he found who was righteous. There was no one he found that was seeking him. There was no one he found to help. It was him alone who redeemed his people. His anger carried him. His wrath alongside of his redemption, that he has redeemed his people. And describing this action, he says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. 
and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Very strong statements. And a a bit of an interesting phrase here. I made them drunk in my wrath. A, A curious statement in the original Hebrew. What is intended to be said here is that they were forced to drink. There is the wrath of God, and they had no choice but to drink it. Now, they may say, well, if God sends me to hell, I just won't go. If God hands me the cup of wrath, I just won't drink it. You don't have that choice anymore. The wrath of God being handed down, you are forced to drink. Now, it's interesting. When we celebrate the Lord's table, and we'll do so next Sunday, we celebrate as God's people what God secured in His redemption. It is a picture of what God has done, that it was his lifeblood that was spilled, that it was his body that was broken in our place. And together we gather to remember what Christ has done. And we take of the body that was broken and we drink of the cup of his redemption. And we remember his blood spilled. One day all of us, will have this decision made. You can either drink of God's redemption or you can drink of his wrath. But you will drink. Make no mistake. You will drink of his redemption or you will drink of his wrath. As of right now, you have a choice. You have a choice to choose God's redemption, to choose the atonement that was made in Jesus. His blood was shed on your behalf. You have a choice to drink of his cup of redemption. That by faith you acknowledge that you are a sinner. That you cannot redeem yourself. That you are fully, rightfully an object of God's wrath. You deserve that. That's what's coming to you. But in faith, you believe that it is Jesus' work that is good enough to satisfy the wrath of God. And that he has done that on your behalf. And by faith, you receive that cup of redemption that Christ has done for you. And I plead with you that you would. Whether you believe it or not, you will encounter Jesus one day. The question is, will you encounter Jesus as judge and condemner? Or will you see him as savior? We all will encounter Jesus one day, and we don't know when that will be. Right now, you have that choice. Either, and this could happen any day, the day that he returns or the day that you die. It could be today. At that point, you will no longer have a choice, but now you have a choice, and that's in front of you. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this picture that has been given to us and has been repeated all throughout scriptures? Well, first of all, as we've stated, the connections that we see from Revelation and all of the words that have been used here tell us that this warrior servant is none other than Jesus. And I hope that that's been made clear. The takeaways here is that it is Jesus alone who saves us. It is also Jesus alone that condemns. Believers, you and I, we do not fear judgment. We do not fear wrath. And we, we fear God from the perspective that we, that we acknowledge his omnipotence and, and his, his goodness and his greatness. And we worship him for that. But we do not fear his wrath and his condemnation 
Because the very thing that we have faith in, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. And though we do not fear condemnation, though we do not fear His eternal wrath, that does give us motivation to reach the lost. That gives us motivation to reach our loved ones. Because wrath is coming. It is real. I know we'd like to believe that it isn't real, but it's real. And we can say that because that's what Scriptures say. If you are not a believer, you must turn to Jesus for your salvation from God's wrath. You must. You will encounter Jesus one day. It needs to be said. You have a choice. And it's before you. So you can kneel at the cross. You can worship our Lord and Savior and have Him take your wrath for you or you can take that wrath upon yourself. And I pray that you would look to your Savior and you'd reach out to Him and cry out to Him for the mercy and judgment. For us believers, all of this picture speaks to the goodness and the greatness of God, of His grace and mercy from which we have been delivered. I hope in seeing the picture of what we've been delivered from and the realities of the depths from which we've been delivered allows us to sing that much louder, allows us to praise that much greater the magnitude and the grace and the mercy of our God. Our God who is mighty to save, not by our hand, but by His and His alone. Will you stand with me as we pray and worship this God? Father, our God, our Lord and our Savior, Your ways are not our ways. And there is much that is difficult for us to fathom. But what we can fathom is that You, Lord, and You, Lord alone, are our Savior and our God. We know we cannot save ourselves. There is no goodness in us that can redeem ourselves. That's why Jesus had to die. With great love that you've had for us, you shed the blood of your Son on our behalf. We worship you and praise you and give you the glory and honor and magnify your name of what you have accomplished, Lord. We cry out for your mercy and grace and we praise you and your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.